0: Today. Thank you. Uh, I was, uh, for those of you who don't know, I was gone last weekend while I was home uh, with some kind of uh, a plague. And uh, so I, I'm thankful for uh, Wes Grego filling in. I'm thankful for all the elders, but Wes got the call on Saturday evening hey, I'm not going to be there. Would you preach? And I've taught Wes well because I've taught him that preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. And uh, of course, that's what missionaries do, right? And so, uh, West filled in for me uh, on last Sunday, and I appreciate it deeply in that. Also, uh, this morning, uh, I was greatly blessed to see Marlon and Linda Stuckey and their children. If we gave long-distance awards, they would get it today, because they've just arrived from Papua New Guinea, uh, where they minister with the National Prayer Movement, and so Marlon, of course, is the son of uh, Alan Deline Stuckey, who were missionaries in Papua New Guinea. And so Marlon and Linda and family will be here in this area for a while, I understand. And so they're getting a break, and we pray for their refreshment and renewal as they're here with us today. So it was a a blessing and a treat for me. If you do not know Marlon and Linda, you will have to meet them after the service and get to know them. So we are thankful they made it safe uh, traveling halfway around the world. So we are thankful for them. Uh, Let me see here. Uh, the word for the day is "atgat," atgat, and we're in Psalm 125. And you may wonder uh, what the connection is, but the connection is all about security. Uh, some of you know that I've ridden motorcycles off and on for many decades, and I've had my share of accidents. And uh, I've learned a lot over the decades, and they say, I borrowed this from aviation, by the way, there are old motorcyclists and there are bold motorcyclists, but there are no old bold motorcyclists. And uh, so I adhere to that uh, principle, and I still love to ride. Uh, And so ATGAT is from the motorcycle world, and it means all the gear, all the time. Now, I want you to memorize that, all the gear, all the time. And this is why. It's kind of hard to see, but this guy is wearing all the gear, all the time. He has a helmet. He has a jacket that is armor in the shoulders and on the back and on the elbows. He has gloves that have armor in them. He has pants that have knee armor and so on and good boots. And so he is at Gat, all the gear, all the time. And if you think this is a new thing, think back. No, it's not new. These guys in the Middle Ages, they wore at-gat also, you know. So it's a, it's a good principle to live by. And in contrast to that, as you're driving around, if you pay attention to motorcyclists when you drive, I hope you do, by the way, because it might be me coming your way, uh, notice how different motorcyclists dress. Now, in the motorcycle world, there are those who are called squids, squids. And they kind of look like this guy. I don't know if you can see him very well. Uh, he's wearing shorts, flip-flops, a t-shirt, no helmet, no gloves. And uh, you can tell he is very relaxed and lackadaisical uh, on his motorcycle there. And I don't know where the term squid came from. Maybe it's what they look like when you throw a squid down on the pavement. I don't know. But uh, you you don't want to be like this guy. And uh, believe me, I have uh, suffered the road rash that this guy is going to have someday. It's not uh, if you crash, it's when you do, kind of in motorcycling. Uh, and also, you've got to wear all the gear all the time, even at Costco or the grocery store. So there you go. There's that guy. That's not me, by the way. So, uh, But I was thinking about ATGAT, all the gear, all the time. And we're talking about security and protection. And uh, we're talking about the security that we find in Psalm 125, if you have not been with us, or if you are new with us this Sunday, we are going through a series of the Songs of Ascent, the Songs of Ascent. and the book of Psalms, if you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 125, the Songs of Ascent are a collection that were put together, and they are Psalms 120 through 134. So there are uh, 15 psalms there. Uh, Four of them were written or penned by King David, one by Solomon, and the rest of them were anonymous. We don't know who wrote down these great Hebrew pieces of prose or poetry. And so we've been going through those, the Psalm of Sunday, and uh, so we come to Psalm 125. And there is a pattern that we have discovered in these Songs of Ascent, and they're called the Songs of Ascent Because as the Jewish pilgrims would go up to Jerusalem three times a year for those designated days of worship, they would go up to the annual feasts of Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the summer, and the Day of Atonement in the fall. And they would travel up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was one of the highest points in that part of the world. And they would go up to Mount Zion, which is the Temple Mount or Jerusalem. And they would go up and worship at these festivals as God commanded them in the book of Exodus. And as they traveled, I need to remind you, they didn't have air-conditioned tour buses. They had to walk. And so they would walk up, and it was uh, dangerous from time to time, and they would go with their family groups and their tribes and their villages and uh, from their farms from around Israel and go up at these designated times. But to take the time, they would sing these psalms, and they would sing them to one another sometimes antiphonally. In other words, a leader would call out, and a, the rest would sing along. And that's how they would memorize them, because... Unlike us, they didn't have a copy of Scripture in their hands. And uh, Jewish people were very good at oral history, oral tradition, passing down the truths of what God had revealed to them. And this was one way they did it. And you can imagine, especially if you have younger children, that they'd be traveling with you. And as they heard the adults singing these psalms, they would be memorizing them as they went. And pretty soon they would know them better than the adults probably. And so these were the songs of ascent as they went up uh, to Jerusalem to worship in those times. And these were psalms that were collected in this, uh, in this book, if you will, a psalm, a songbook, for these pilgrims to sing as they went up to Jerusalem. Notice in Psalm 125 that uh, it is a book about confidence. It is a, a psalm about security We've seen a pattern through these psalms where the first psalm, like 120, is a psalm of distress, and then Psalm 121 is a psalm of confidence, and Psalm 122 is a psalm of security. There are these packages of three, and there's four of them like that in this collection of psalms. And so 123 is a psalm of distress, Psalm 124 is confidence, Psalm 125 is security, and it's repeated Two more times in this collection of psalms, and the last three psalms are really about a and it's about a pilgrimage, and the metaphor, of course, is for the Christian life, that the Christian life, we are on a journey that today is not all there is, that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, you have a future and a hope, and we are on a journey, we are traveling as God gives us our days, and one day we will arrive, And it won't be Jerusalem, it'll be the new Jerusalem, and it'll be Jesus Christ, who we will be with at that time. And so we look at this, and as believers in Christ, these psalms serve as a metaphor for our journey and our travel. And doesn't our life, isn't it marked by sometimes by distress, despair. And then when we remind ourselves about God's word, we can have confidence. And then when we really look at God's word, we have the security or we should have the security of knowing no matter how upsetting the world is and how adverse my difficulties are and how much pain and trouble I'm going through, that I have the confidence and the security that I have a future hope, that there is a place for me and I belong and I can be secure now and that I can have great joy even in the midst of problems That I'm going through. And so we see the first word in Psalm 125, there's one Hebrew word, and it's it's a it's a combination word which indicates here that those who trust, those who trust, it's one Hebrew word put in the Hebrew there. Uh, And so we talk about being trust, and those are referred to, those who trust in the Lord are referred to a number of ways in this short poem. They're called his people, they're called the godly, those who do good those hearts who are in tune, and they're also referred to as Israel. Remember, these psalms were written for Israel, God's people in that time and space, and still God's desired people. He has a future and a hope for Israel There's no room for replacement theology here. We believe that God is going to complete what he has promised Israel in the Abrahamic promises. And also, those who trust are contrasted with the wicked in this psalm. So you see the two contrasting people that are referred to, the wicked, those who turn to crooked ways, those who do evil. And then it it begins with an affirmation about those who trust in God and closes with a prayer in verses 4 and 5 for those who trust in God. And so it's all about security. I was thinking about that. You know, security is a paramount concern in our age, in our day and age. In fact, we as a country and as a people have been willing to give up some of our freedoms for security. Think about that next time you take a flight in an airport when you go through the security lines. And we're willing to give up our personal freedoms and desires, perhaps, for security. So we try to protect ourselves, protect our families, protect our possessions, protect our loved ones, all of that. There's a big emphasis. In fact, it is a whole industry, the security industry. Some of you have Security systems around your home and your property, and all of that. I was asked one time somebody was looking for a gift for a neighbor or a relative of theirs, and they said, You know, they have everything. What should I buy them? And I said, You should buy them a burglar alarm. And that's about the only thing left uh, about security. But you know, ultimately, our only security is the Lord, our maker of heaven and earth. He is the only one who is adequate for our security, ultimately. I mean, we can have guard dogs and guns and all sorts of stuff to try to protect ourselves, but ultimately, for the believer in Jesus Christ, the Lord is our security, the maker of heaven and earth. Think about these things. He is omniscient. That is a theological term that means that God knows everything. He always knows what you need, and he knows it perfectly. Actually, it's interesting, if we went forward a few pages, Psalm 139, Psalm 139, the first six verses are related to God's knowledge that he knows everything. Secondly, he is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. There's always, he's always there when we need him. He is never a distant God. Psalm 139, 7 through 12, he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He can do what needs to be done. There is nothing that God cannot do, okay? Psalm 139, 13 through 16. Uh, fourthly, he is loving and gracious. He has our, best, our spiritual best interest at heart, 139, 17 through 18, and many other places in Scripture, of course. But Psalms kind of, Psalm 139 kind of packages this up very neatly for us. With a God like this, why should we trust in all of the security devices that the world offers? Yes, we need to have brains and wisdom to take care of what we, who we are and what's going on in our lives and be aware, but ultimately, our security is from God himself. Remember, we've been emphasizing the providence of God, which is an expression of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is God is in control of all things at all times and all places, which sometimes when we look around the world, we wonder, really? Is God really like that? But God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and for the good of his people. His providence is at work even at this very moment in your life, my life, and around the world, wherever we find ourselves. So the psalmist begins in 125 with a celebration of God's protection. It goes beyond at believe me. Uh, yes, motorcyclists should be smart and wear the gear, but this goes beyond all areas of life. Verse 1 tells us that all who trust in the Lord are secure. He uses a figure of speech here called the simile. And look at verse 1 again. Those who trust in the Lord are secure are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. So the psalmist is taking what these pilgrims see, what these Jewish people see, when they see the mountains, he's done this before, and they look up and they see the Temple Mount, and they look at the the topography around Jerusalem, and it's a secure place, it's a fortress, and he's saying that a believer, one who trusts in the Lord, is like that. And we think of, uh, you know, when you think of the Rock of Gibraltar, I think there's an insurance company that uses a graphic of the Rock of Gibraltar over at the southern tip of Spain as something that is secure and that will never be destroyed or anything. And that's the idea behind it. It communicates security to modern people. We trust in the Lord. We can be as secure as the Rock of Gibraltar, as secure as Mount Zion, Ultimately, what made Mount Zion so secure was not the fortifications of that city, but it was the presence of God in that very city. By way of extension, the security of those who trust in the Lord, to, in, to the, in the presence of the Lord, have the, Himself in their lives. Now, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the fundamental teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, but in that package is the fact that we are secure. If you struggle with your security, if you wrestle with whether or not you're going to go to heaven or not, you have to reevaluate what you are believing in. Because the Bible is very clear John 3:16 16, encapsulated all. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son, that if you believe in him, you shall not perish, but you will have everlasting life. It doesn't say if you behave and do good things, you might have everlasting life. All through the New Testament, there are over 150 occurrences that to, believe, to uh, have everlasting life in Jesus Christ is to believe in him and what he promised. And as has been said, if God wanted to convey some other concept that you could lose your salvation or it's a tentative thing that you have to persevere in, he would not have used that Greek word for everlasting life. The Gospel of John and the epistles of John are very clear about the the requirements for salvation, for eternal life, and that is believe in Jesus Christ. And so we can have security. Romans, the end of Romans 8 is an example of that. Who can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. Because it's all about Jesus Christ. He has paid it all. And that is God's expression to us as human beings, that if you believe in him for everlasting life, you are immediately secure in your salvation. The second concept is assurance. And that's more of a Godward thing when we read God's word are we assured that we are a believer in him for everlasting life and of course John 5:24 is the classic example uh, and let me read that for you Mark Luke John I'll get there in a minute here John 5:24 Uh, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And you look at the action words there, you look at the verbs, and you recognize that if you have heard the word of God, you've heard the gospel, it may be just as simple as the verse John 3.16, and if you've believed in him, you have eternal life, and you do not come into judgment, but have passed out of death into life. Now, God is not trying to trick us. He is being very clear. The Gospel of John is very clear in that. So there is a place for us to trust in the Lord because he has made us secure. It is what he has done. And the Lord surrounds us and we are secure. Look at verse 2 back in Psalm 125. And he's, again, using the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. It's not conditioned upon your actions or the way you live. It's conditioned on the fact that he has made it secure. For believers in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life, you are secure. I need to emphasize that. And in the Old Testament, for the Jewish believers, they were secure in God. This becomes explicit in this passage. Those who are belong, belong to the Lord, trust in the Lord, are like Jerusalem. They are surrounded by the mountains. They are protected. And that's a picture, a poetic picture of how God surrounds us and takes care of us. The Lord may use external means to protect and deliver us. But this psalm teaches that we put our trust in the Lord himself, not in the external means that he may use. Romans 8 again is an example of that. So with faith, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when difficulty, trouble, and adversity comes into our life, there is a tendency to ask the question, why God? Where are you, God? What is going on? What's the matter? What is the deal? And so our faith can fracture and our feelings can get bruised. And I need to remind you that our feelings are subjective. Our feelings are subjective. Yes, they're important. They're God-given emotions. They're important for many things, they're essential and they are valuable when you think about it. Uh, they keep us aware of what is true and real, they, but they tell us next to nothing about God or my relationship to God. Our security comes from God who is and not from how I feel. So subjective feelings are not a defining fact of what God is doing in your life. We need to go back to the objective truth of God's Word. So being a disciple of Jesus Christ on this pilgrim journey that we are on together, discipleship is a decision to live by what I know about God. Let me repeat that. Discipleship or following Jesus is to live by what I know about God, not what I feel about myself or others. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is around and about his people. The, the image announces a dependable, unchanging, safe, secure existence for God's people that comes from geology, not psychology. We need to remember that. And so, But there is this question, this reality of evil in our world. I mean, we face it every day. We get up and we look in the mirror and we see a sinner. And if you're a believer in Christ, we see a sinner saved by grace, but yet we still make these, we, we sin. We are people who sin. And then the evil of the world around us. In verse 3, the psalmist makes a declaration about God's power. Look at verse 3 again in this in this Psalm 125. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not pour forth their hands to do wrong. Basically, wickedness will not dominate forever. The scepter of wickedness is a picture of a foreign kingdom or a foreign nation that is oppressing Israel, which they had many foreign oppressors, scepters of evil that would come across the land. But God is promising that this will not dominate forever. This will not happen forever. The second part of verse 3 is the fact that we are tempted, but God never tempts us beyond what we are able to stand, All persons of faith that I know, including myself, are sinners, doubters, and uneven performers in the Christian life. We are secure not because we are sure of ourselves, but because we trust God that he is sure of us. Remember the opening phrase of this psalm, those who trust God. Not those who trust in their performance, not those who trust in their morals, Not those who trust in their own righteousness, not in their health, not in their pastor, not in their doctor, not in their president, not in their economy, not in their nation. Those who trust in God. Those who decide that God is for you and he will make us whole eternally. I think that is a fundamental issue these psalms are teaching us is that God is for his people. He's not for our sin. Don't confuse that. But he has redeemed us because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. He has indwelt us with his Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, he gives a prayer for God's people. This affirmation of our security gives us great confidence that we can pray about security in this life and the fact that we will make good decisions. So in verse 4, there is, the psalmist says there's a supplication uh, for God's people, a prayer for the goodness to the good. Do good, O oh Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. It sounds performance-oriented, doesn't it? We need to understand this. God, the psalmist simply asks God to see it, that the people reap what they have sown. He prays that the Lord would do good to those who are good. And of course, here it means those who trust in God. He's connecting the trust in God with how we appear before God, those who are good. Psalm 14, 1 and 53, 1 have taught us that not one of them does good. Uh, you know, we have been taught that no one does good. So how can the psalmist refer to those who are good? Uh, and this psalmist is not alone because David has said that people repaid him evil for the good that he did. And another psalmist invites us to do good in thirty-seven three. The latter invitation is significant because it is coupled with an invitation to trust the Lord. Trust in the Lord and do good, it says in Psalm 37. So here are those who trust in the Lord will have a different kind of life. Those who have good hearts that are in tune with God, which implies that their lives are in tune with his will. Are we concerned with him accomplishing his will in our lives? And we have this life of obedience and faith as we live it out. And this prayer for the goodness to the upright at the end of verse 4, and that God would grant this experience and goodness in our lives. And if we look at it, we are being blessed day by day. That's why I often pray for eyes to see God's blessings, no matter what the situation is that we're in. The psalmist says that there are some who will turn and turn to the crooked crooked ways, and they reap and will be carried away. Look at verse 5, God's conclusion for the perverse, the psalmist writes, but as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. There is a judgment coming. There is a place for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, and it's a place that was prepared for Satan and his demons. And there will be judgment coming for those who do not believe in Jesus for everlasting life. And God's conclusion that there is a sure conclusion. Remember, God has carried out all of his promises he's promised up to this point, and he still has some to go, and he will carry out those promises those who trust in the Lord are for peace. The end of this psalm says, peace be upon Israel. That's the word shalom. And it is a rich, full word. Those who are not for peace are ones who do not, uh, they, they want, they do not want peace. Uh, those who trust in the Lord want peace, but there are many who are opposed to peace and the path to peace. The psalmist prays for a full sense of the psalm of the word shalom, the absence of strife and injustice and presence of tranquility and fullness. Of course, it will not be fully experienced until uh, the kingdom of God is established. When the rule of evil is broken and the rule of God is manifest, there is righteousness and joy and peace through the Holy Spirit's presence, it tells us in Romans chapter 14. And we have the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us as The book in Corinthians tells us, and that we uh, are recognizing that God, the peace of the Spirit's presence is because Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to accomplish what he wants to accomplish by killing the enmity of sin by the death on the cross. He is the Prince of Peace, and that Israel could have peace now and forevermore. He is promising this, the presence of peace in that. And so, living by faith means that we look to God for his protection, for his power. We rely on the provision of his grace. In fact, that last word, peace be upon Israel. Really, if you, in the context, uh, we could paraphrase that, like, with the word relax. We are secure. We are not running the show. Neither are feelings of depression nor facts of suffering, nor possibilities of defection or evidence that God has abandoned us. There is nothing more certain than that he will accomplish his salvation in our lives and perfect it in our histories. Three times in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, knowing how easily we can imagine the worst, repeats the reassuring command, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. Our life with God is a sure thing. From our elder affirmation of faith, we have statements on doctrine, what we believe and why we believe it. And uh, under Article 8, uh, under salvation, as we have studied Scripture, and in that statement, we say that we believe that because of the eternal purpose of God toward the objects of his love, because of his freedom to exercise grace towards the bearerless on the ground of their the satisfying blood of Christ because of the very nature of the divine gift of eternal life, because of the present and unending intercession and advocacy for Christ of Christ in heaven, because of his unchangeable character and unchangeable covenants of God, and so on, that he has promised us everlasting life. What is key in that one statement under salvation, under eternal security, are the two words, the two ministries of Christ that are going on right now. He is our intercessor and our advocate. Very interesting terms. Christ's intercession assures us of the security of our salvation. When people ask me about security in salvation and assurance of their salvation, uh, I often go to this very theological fact, this doctrinal fact of Jesus' current ministry. Because if you could lose your salvation... It means that Jesus Christ fails in his ministry of intercession and advocacy. Christ's intercession assures us of the security of our salvation. If a believer could lose his salvation only if Christ would be ineffective in his role as mediator, according to Romans 8, Hebrews 7, the intercession of Christ involves his presence before the Father, his spoken word, and his continual intercession Uh, In continual, there's a present tense verb there. And his advocacy restores us to fellowship when the fellowship is broken through sin. Christ is termed the believer's advocate. It's uh, parakletos. We talked about that word before. Uh, You could just uh, boldly define that as our defense attorney. In uh, the rabbi's literature, the word could indicate one who offers legal aid and or intercedes on behalf to someone else. The word undoubtedly signified an advocate or a counsel for the defense in a legal context. And so remember that if you are doubting your salvation, first of all, go back to the gospel. What does John 3.16 says? The, the, The condition for the consequence. Remember, the consequence is everlasting life. What is the condition? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And so that is the condition and the consequence. Then if you doubt your salvation, go to John 5, 24, and Romans, the end of Romans 8. And then recognize that Christ is our intercessor and our advocate. And if you could lose your salvation, he would have failed, which he cannot, excuse me, he cannot fail. He is perfect and holy and carrying out his plan. If the men are going to come help uh, serve, the Lord's table this morning would come up and be seated here in the front. We have talked about uh, our security of our salvation. Uh, we have talked about uh, the assurance we can have. And we come and we do this to remember what Jesus Christ has done. And we do this once a month. We observe the Lord's table. Of course, we're commanded to in the central passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul gives instructions to the church that he received from the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's referring back to that original Lord's Table, which was the Passover meal that's recorded by Luke in Luke 22. And I wanted to read that for us today in Luke chapter 22, uh, because we see here the historical setting where Jesus took the long Passover meal that had been celebrated every year by Jewish people from their removal from Egypt, from their uh, pilgrimage into the Promised Land. And that was a picture of anticipating the Messiah anticipating the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this passage, the Lord's Supper, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table with the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of one who has betrayed me is is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them was going to be Uh, Doing this thing. And so that's the historical setting which Paul records. And remember, Paul in his passage in 1 Corinthians 11 says, Do this in remembrance of me twice, records the Lord Jesus Christ's words there. And so we are to do this remembrance of Jesus Christ. He is declared there in the Luke 22 passage that he has come to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and that we are remembering what he's done as we look back at what he has done for us. And so in the First Corinthians 11 passage, uh, they pray and then they distribute the elements, the bread and the cup. And for, if you're a new here, if you're a guest here, we practice open communion. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're free to partake with us in this. If you've never believed in Jesus for everlasting life, I would ask you to really consider your eternal destination and the fact that John 3.16 is so clear about how you can know you have everlasting life. And I would challenge you to believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, but abstain because these elements we believe are a memorial time. They help us remember. They do not impart any grace or blessing on you other than the fact that you're participating with other believers and remembering what Jesus Christ has done. And so I'm going to ask uh, Wes Crago to give thanks for the bread before we distribute it this morning. Heavenly Father, Our need for a Savior is and continues to be, Father. It is us that we ask for your forgiveness for our sins. We confess that we do sin, but Lord, we trust in you that you are sufficient. Your Son's death and substituted my place on the cross was all that was required, and we believe in you, Father. We just ask this time that as we uh, take this cup. We remember your promises to us. We remember your holiness and your all-consuming power. But, Father, that's all we need, only Christ. And we remember him, and we do this in his memory. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Amen. Jesus.